You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. If you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could open it up to the book of Hebrews. I feel God. I mean, I love it because God has just got everything together. This series was planned, I think it was in December, before we knew all the things that were going to be moved on. We'd, we'd mapped out what we were going to preach through to um, August. This book is so key for us. You see, the book of Hebrews was written to some uh, believing they had been Jews that had become Christians. And to be totally honest, they were getting a bit weary. They were getting a bit tired of it. And they were almost looking back and thinking, oh, do you remember the good old days? And they were tempted to go back. And actually, the message is, no, no, come on, I want to take you forward. Don't step back. And I guess for us, even now, the danger is we could look back on the good old day. Oh, it's been great. Oh, the town has been great. But actually, there's this sense of, come on, let's keep going by faith forward. I'm just going to read four verses. We'll pray, and then we're going to kick off. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. God's final word, his son. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he has provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we ask that you'd open our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears and our our spiritual heart. We ask that you'd speak to us and we'd have the courage to respond to what you say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Hebrews, what is it? There's been loads of definitions thrown around. If you know anything about the Bible, you know there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some have considered Hebrews the fifth Gospel in the Bible. Why? Because it is so Jesus-centric. Some of you say, no, 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 Pete, it's not a Gospel because it's not next to the other four. It's, it's, It's hidden amongst all the letters. So maybe it's an epistle. That's a word for letters in the Bible. But actually, it's not really like the other letters because they all start with greetings. They say, hi, my name's Paul. I'm writing to you. Greetings. But there's none of that here. Some think that actually Hebrews was really a sermon. And that what had happened is they just preached this sermon and they thought, wow, that's a mega sermon. Podcasts have not yet been invented. Let's write it down and stick it in a book. We don't know. 
Peter O'Brien, he's an Australian New Testament scholar. I've been trying to get some wisdom this week. He says this, Hebrews is a magnificent New Testament document. It is carefully constructed and beautifully written, theologically profound and powerfully argued. So as we come for these six weeks to try and study this gospel, this letter, this epistle, I want us to come with faith and think, wow. Okay, let's just try and get through some of the details. Who actually wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, if you know anything about the Bible, there's 66 books that make up the Bible, and often we know who wrote them. We're not sure who wrote Hebrews. There's a clue, they think, if you look at Hebrews 11.32, that it was written by a man. We don't know that. Some would argue from chapter 2 it was written by someone who had experienced Jesus themselves. Or some would say, no, actually that verse points to someone who'd heard from someone else who had experienced. We do not know. Oregon, he was one of the early church fathers. He was a scholar in Egypt. And he says, who actually wrote the epistle? God only knows. So I cannot answer that question. But Phil Moore, who wrote another commentary that I read this week, said this, knowing who wrote Hebrews is not essential. Knowing what Hebrews teaches is far more important. So we're not quite sure what kind of book it is. We're not quite sure who wrote it. And we're not quite sure when they wrote it. We think it was written before AD 70. Why is that? Because that's when the temple was destroyed and the Jewish audience that he was writing to would have wanted that referred to. It would have been so important. It's not referred to. So we think it was written before then. But what we do know is the kind of people it was written to. It was written to those from a Jewish background who were being tempted to return to their old ways. You see, these people were finding Christianity hard because their old Jewish friends were having a dig at them and say, golly, why on earth are you following this new way? The Roman authorities were having a dig at them. I say a dig at them. It was nasty persecution. Nero, who was the emperor, wanted to blame them for things that were going wrong. He was persecuting them. And so they were tempted to give up. They were tempted to no longer meet together. They were getting tired of worship, of being different to society. Many of them were ex-Jews. They'd lost the beautiful temple. They'd lost the status of being Jewish. They're commissioned now to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They're more interested in saving their skins, i.e. being comfortable, than saving their souls. And so this, this, this sermon, I'm going to call it, comes. And is the idea to say, look, come on, you're finding things a bit tough. Don't worry, I've got softer chairs for you. You're finding things a bit tough. Don't worry, I've got brighter lights for you. You're finding things a bit tough. Don't worry, we get, we get better musicians for you. You're finding things tough. I'll get a better screen for you. No. What does he say? Well, the theme of this whole book is what is better what is greater, what is more. Henry Ford, if any of you have got got a Ford car, you know that Henry Ford was the first guy who ever manufactured the motor car. He was often said, if I'd have asked the people of America what they would have wanted, they would have replied, a faster horse. But I knew what they needed and built them a car. 
In many respects, the, the author of Hebrews does the same thing. If he'd have gone to the, the, the believers and said, what do you want? They might say, oh, golly, we're missing these things of the past. He said, no, I'm going to give you something better. I want you to see it. And the better that he talks about is Jesus Christ. It's a clear theme. 34 times Jesus is mentioned. It's almost like right in the beginning, it says, do you know, there used to be a little sketch of what God was like. You could try and have a look at it and think of an image. But actually, I can't quite see God. He said, now it's a bit like a coin. If you get a stamp, everyone's the same. There's this exact mold made. Well, that was Jesus, and he's revealing God. I would like to say that the author to Hebrews is a bit like being given a present to the church. And what actually happens, you see, is he's saying to them, hey, look, we all love it, don't we? Everybody loves a present. You just think, this one says to the church on it. What great paper. And it's fantastic, isn't it? You think of all the things I could do with this paper. I could make it into a dress, couldn't I? You know, I could hang it up on the wall and we could all come around and say, isn't that pretty paper? I could laminate it, if you like, and we could turn it into dinner mats. And you could come around and say, what nice paper. Let's be honest, most of us look back and think, golly, Pete, you've been very childish. Because kids at Christmas get more excited with the wrapper than the present. And what the, the author of Hebrews is really saying is, You've got caught up in the wrappings of Christianity and you've forgotten what the main thing was all about. The main thing is not the wrappings of Christianity. The main thing is Jesus Christ himself. And so he unpacks it in this first thing. And, and we don't tend to think like this, but he's saying that the whole of the Old Testament had one theme, and the theme was Jesus. The Old Testament was true. So many times throughout this whole book, he'd be referring to these characters, to these events, and he's saying, look, they, I want you to understand what was the real present. Don't get caught up in the sacrifices. Don't just get caught up in all the temple or the festival days. What was this really all about? It is a tough book to grapple with. C.H. Spurgeon, he was called the Prince of Preachers. He used to be here in London. He said this, I wish frequently that the Hebrews had kept the epistle to themselves, for it sadly bored a poor Gentile lad. He said, I'm not interested in this book at all. And the danger is some of us could think it is rather confusing. There is no shallow water in this book. He jumps straight into truth, which is what we're going to do today. And the danger with our society is that we're fascinated by doers. And this book is going to cause us to think. Ah, we always want those that have achieved and accomplished and have done, and we honor that. And suddenly the book is saying, no, I want you to think deeper. George Guthrie, you'd never have heard of him. But he's an American professor in the New Testament, and he says this, those who neglect theology may live a shallow, insipid form of Christianity that in the end neither affects life nor endures the test of time. And so what this author of Hebrews is saying, I want to take you on this theological exercise, and I want you to stop looking at the wrapping, and I want you to understand what faith is all about. And the first way he does this 
is he compares Jesus to angels. So, I mean, come on. It's new age at the best for most of us. But angels at the time was a big thing for the Jewish community. You see, the Jews understood that God is holy, and we don't really understand that. That means God is perfect. He's never seen, never thought anything. And then they thought, well, I'm not that good. And so what they thought is there's this massive gap between God and me. How do we bridge the gap? So the Jewish theology was this. The angels used to take the prayers and give them up to God. In fact, if you look at Galatians, they even got to the point of thinking it was really the angels that brought the commandments from God to Moses. And so there was this in-between, these special beings called angels. You can read quite a bit about it in the Old Testament. We know that the angels were those that were around the throne of God because of the vision of Isaiah. We know the angels were on earth and they were an army that actually Joshua said, are you for me or for God? You know, our enemies. And they said, no, we're for God. We know that the angels spoke to Moses about prayer, praying over a sitting. We know the angels went in and helped Lot get rescued. But the Jews made this whole theology. Now, they weren't sure, actually, if angels were immortal. They definitely weren't immortal, but did they last the day? We do know that they didn't think angels eat, slept, or recreated. But one rabbi was so caught up in angels, he reckoned there was an angel for every single blade of grass on the earth. They had this massive theology of angels. So what the author to Hebrews says is, look, you're caught up on this angel being. You're caught up on this sort of supernatural being. Jesus is better. Ah, wow, that's why he throws in this one little line. And then for the rest of the chapter, he unpacks, I know it wasn't written in chapters, but the bit we're looking at today. He unpacks this, Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior. If you remember just one thing this morning, Jesus is superior. That is the message of this book. It says in chapter 1 verse 4, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he had inherited is superior to theirs. Angels literally means messenger. They literally brought messages. They comforted Jesus in the desert. They also helped him in the Garden of Gethsemane when facing difficulty. But really, they were just bringing messages. We know that they did that in the early church. We know in Acts 5, they broke people out of prison. A message from God, a job from God. We know they instructed Philip where to preach in Acts 8. We know they encouraged the believers in Acts 10. We know they stood with those who traveled in Acts 27. He said, oh, these are messengers, but Jesus is the Son of God. Ah, wow. Let's not misunderstand that. Jews would think, what, did Mary... No, sorry, the Muslims might think Mary had sex with God, and that's why you get this son of God. That's not it at all. Son of God was a title for Messiah from the Old Testament. And so when they said, look, this is son of God, what they really said, oh, the Messiah, God himself. His name was superior to their name. Jesus is given superior dignity. It says in chapter 1, verse 6, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The angels that you think there's so many, there's one on every blade of grass, they are all created to worship Jesus. Jesus was created to be worshipped by them. 
They offer constant adoring praise. Jesus is the one to be praised. Hey, Jesus is superior. He has a superior nature. The author goes on to say in the sermon, chapter 1 and verse 7, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. There's some talk that this was something that was temporary. But Jesus is eternal. They could come and they could go. But Jesus will never disappear because he's eternal. Not only in time, but also in quality. Their nature was this sort of flickering flame. How's it going to last? What's going to happen? But Jesus is the eternal one. What the author was saying is, Jesus is superior. He's got a superior role. Jesus is the eternal one, the only king of men with an eternal throne, a righteous scepter. You can read it in chapter 1, verse 8. Your throne, O God, will last forever. In chapter 1, verse 7, it was uh, Jesus being connected to one that had spoken. That was a prophet. In chapter 1, verse 3, it's Jesus who's seated. That was a priest who saved. And now in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is sovereign. That's a king who reigns. And so he's painting this picture. And he's saying, no, well, you don't understand. Jesus is superior to the angels. It goes on in verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companion. Jesus was a superior example than the angels. You see, the, merit, the, the, the honest truth is you can have good angels and you can have bad angels. Whereas Jesus, though fully human, did not sin. So what the author is trying to say is, look, look, you you try and think, wow, these angels, they're close to God. They're amazing. I want you to understand Jesus is superior to everyone. Oh, wow. He goes on in verse 10. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. They will be changed, but you remain. It was a superior work. The angels were created for God's purposes, but Christ was not created. Christ didn't occur in Bethlehem. He was there at the foundation of the world. He was there in Genesis. And what they're trying to say, look, you've got to understand what Christ did. Whoa, that is so much better than any angel. Christ remains the same forever. Christ never changes. Wow. Surely our eyes should be open. We think, wow, who is this God? Can I comprehend him? He goes on in in verse um, 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand? No angel was ever invited to sit at the right hand of God. They would just hurry and do God's errands. Angels can serve us, but they could not save us. Whereas actually the father says to the son, I want you to come and sit. I want you to come and be with me. I want you to come and reign with me. And so they were writing, look, you've got caught up in all these wrappings. And I want you to understand The real gift is Jesus Christ and how great he is. So many times this book is painting a superior picture of Christ. Even goes on in verse 13, until I make 
your enemies a footstool for your feet, a superior destiny. No angel deserved that exaltation and acclamation. We can read in Revelation, don't we, that actually if you get a view of heaven, you looked and you heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne and in a loud voice singing, Worthy is the Lamb. That is Jesus who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So how does this sermon impact us? This sermon impacts us because what we're saying is Jesus is superior. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we learn he offers purification for sins. He makes the way so that you can draw near to God. He helps us in our time of need. He delivers us from death and he takes us to glory. Wow. I know it's bank holiday weekend, but that should have been an amen there out of thoughts. <laughs> I mean, this, this is our God. So I want to throw down a couple of challenges for us. I think it challenges us with regard to, with regard to authority. Where's the authority in your life? You see, we live in an age where you could say humanism reigns. Humanism is a rationalistic outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to humans rather than divine or spiritual. So even now, we decide how we're going to live because what seems logical to me. We live in a relativistic age. That is that all doctrine exists in relation to culture, society, and there's no absolutes. I believe that just leads to confusion, but that's where we live. We live in a naturalistic age where philosophical beliefs and everything arises from natural properties and causes. And if we can understand them, we can build up this truth. But it means everything starts from me and nothing starts from God. Whereas actually, this book says, God has got the right to call out what is right and what is wrong. He dictates and he instructs. Will we submit to God? The more I've thought about this week, I thought, God, that is a really strong challenge to me. And you might be sat there saying, I'm not not sure I like what you're saying. And I thought, great, that's the perfect example of what I've just said. Oh, yeah. How do I really understand that God is superior and I submit to his word? Pete, are you really saying that today? I'm I'm not sure we should say those kind of things. Do we understand that he is superior in terms of authority over my thinking and my intellect? I'll tell you how else I think this book is going to challenge us. It challenges us because will we endure? We live in a disposable age. Nothing's made to last. I was going to say, we could, you could think about cups, couldn't you? Disposable cups, you could think about cutlery. But if we're really shocking, that's probably even true of babies and abortion. I was chatting to a lady from the States just recently, and she was telling me in a couple of states in America now, when the baby is born, as long as it has not been the cord cut, you can still abort it. Because we live in a disposable age. It's no longer convenient to me 
I don't want it. And yet Christianity is about enduring. Christianity is about persevering. Christianity is not about a one-off prayer that you constantly look back and think, that was the day I believed. Christianity is about discipleship. So if you're here and you say, God, I am a Christian, of course you're going to sign up for a meet-up. Plug, plug. Because I want to be a disciple. It just seems crazy. Am I in or am I out? I mean, I don't say that about my marriage. Oh, I feel like being married on a Monday, but not on a Tuesday. I don't want to be married when the football's on, but I'm quite happy to be married when I get into bed and I'm feeling horny. Do I, do I choose God like that? Oh, well, actually, I don't want you to get involved in my money, but I quite like you get involved in my problems. I don't want you to honor where I live and how I behave, but I'd quite like you to give me a miracle. Oh, no, Christianity is about enduring. He is writing to these people to say, come on, let's keep going. The examples we see in this book, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus all had to endure. But I tell you, the biggest challenge I want to be, and I know I've got to land it right now, the danger I would say with us and Christianity that we will get challenged by this book as we look at it over the next six weeks is that I can approach Christianity for how does it manage my life and make me better? And the minute I do that, I've got fascinated with the wrapping paper. And I thought, oh, I'll be a Christian as long as my money works out. Oh, I'll be a Christian as long as my marriage is happier. Oh, I'll be a Christian as long as I... We get caught up in the wrapping paper. And actually, this whole book is saying, it's not about a Yamaha speaker. But it's about saying, do you want the present? Do you want what this is really about? Christianity is about Christ. Christianity is about Jesus Christ himself. And so if we're really going to look at this book, we're going to think, God, how can I throw away some of my fascinations with the wrappings and how do I come back to you? As I told you, I read many commentaries on this. I want to grapple with it myself. If you're going to be around, I encourage you, read the book of Hebrews. Read it all through. And then when we go through it over the next few weeks, hopefully you'll pull out some nuggets. Raymond Brown, he used to be the principal of Spurgeon's Bible College. He said this, no believer can cope with adversity unless Christ fills his horizons, sharpens his priorities, and dominates his experience. So actually, what is it we want to go through in this series? We want Christ to be the one that dominates our horizons. He's got to be the one I look at. I don't know what you're facing in the month of May, but I'm coming to say Jesus Christ is the superior one, and we've got to throw other things away. As a church, even I say, why would we move to one venue over another? Because I want other people to discover Jesus Christ. Why do we do an alpha introduction this week? Why do we keep paying for people to eat at Osterio de Portico? Because we want to lift up Jesus Christ. Campbell Morgan, he was an evangelist, died in the last century, said this, when the church ceases to lift Christ to the height where all people can see him, it becomes useless and a fraud. 
And so as we go into this book of Hebrews, what I'd love us to do is say, come on, let's throw away all the wrappings. How do we lift up Jesus? Why do we come and sing these songs? We want to lift up Jesus. Why do we come and pray? Because actually we take our eyes off ourselves and we look at Jesus. Now you might not think, oh, I'm not into angels. No, but is Jesus superior in your life? And he was just using this as an example for them. In my last church, when we'd have a prayer meeting and, you know, anyone could pray at any time or start a song, I only ever used to start one song. People said it was the only one I had confidence to sing. And then they start saying, it's an oldie, Pete. We'll have somebody else start a song. The one I used always to sing was probably more for my own heart as much as for the prayer meeting. And it was the chorus that went like this. It's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for you, for your glory and fame. It's not about me as if you should do things my way. You see, I realize, I've been a Christian now for decades, I can end up trying to make God do things for me rather than saying, actually, it's all about you. And I recognize that my danger is, come on, let's just polish that up. (laughs) What could you do for me this week, Jesus? My son really could do with a placement. Please treat my daughter better than she deserves. You know, I, oh, I've got my prayers, and I'm, I'm rubbing this just to see if the genie will bless me. Whereas actually what this is all saying is, God, we should be face down on our face before him. If we really grasped how great he was, oh, I wouldn't be twisting anybody's arm to read the Bible or to pray. They'd be saying, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, you're what it's all about. It's not about me. My prayer this morning is this. I'm not going to say, oh, I want you to change anything. I don't want us to focus on the wrapping today. I would just like us to respond by saying, Jesus, I'd love a better view of you. If that's true, why don't you just raise your hands right where you are. Say, Jesus, I would love a better view of you. Maybe you know in your own heart, I've got more caught up in the wrappings than I should have done. I think, oh, God, if... Lord, if my meetup filled up, I'd be delighted. Jesus, I want a better view of you. Jesus, we do want to be those. With this book that we come back and think, oh, we're sorry that we've got caught up in other things. Jesus, we want to have a better view of you. You are superior. You're better than we can imagine, we can comprehend. Jesus, let us be those that are captivated by As we were singing this morning, oh God, all of you, all of you, let us die to ourselves more and more and just be captivated by a vision of you. Let us be a church that just shares Jesus with so many others, I ask, for your glory. Amen.